episode of the SASMA podcast. This month, Dr. Jan Peter Smiedema, General and Interventional Cardiologist, PhD graduate, and founder of the Sports Cardiovascular Research Program, interviews Associate Professor Dace Eisvogel, who has particular interest in the benefits and potential drawbacks of exercise, from the lack thereof to high volumes and intensities. This episode really covers a lot of bases, with practical pearls littered amongst the discussion of the research. They discuss cardiovascular adaptations to exercise, what we do and don't know about differences between sporting disciplines, races and sexes, the relevance of cardiac troponins in athletes, the need to target sedentary behavior and optimal step counts for all-cause mortality, and finally, end off with a few thoughts on public policy and future research. We hope you enjoy this episode and we would love your feedback. Follow us on Instagram at at sasma.podcast for all the episodes and to get in touch. Now let's get into it. Thank you for uh, taking up invitation for tonight's SESMA podcast. I'll briefly introduce you, but then I'll leave the word to you because I think there's so much to tell about you, but I'd rather leave it to yourself to, in very succinct terms, give us a bit of background on your fascinating history, your journey with exercise, physiology, exercise science, and the major contributions you've made in the 10, 15 years that you've been active in this field. So Thijs Eisvogels is a PhD, he's the Associate Professor at Redboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. He's trained in exercise physiology in Nijmegen at the Redboud University. He also trained at Hartford Hospital and Liverpool John Morse University. Thijs Eisvogels is interested in the physiological and cardiac responses of the human body to acute and chronic endurance exercise. His research is focused on the benefits and the potential deleterious effects of exercise across the whole spectrum of physical activity, from sedentarism, a new term for me, sedentarism, to excessive volumes of exercise. And that's something we deal with quite regularly in South Africa with all our ultramarathon runners and fanatics. Thais, we're very appreciative of your willingness to take up our invite for this podcast. Could you tell our listeners more about yourself and how you got involved in exercise physiology, your interest and the focus or the foci of your research? Of course, I can. So first of all, thank you very much for, uh, for this part of this uh, podcast. I'm based in Nijmegen, which is in the southeast of, of the Netherlands. And following my study by medical sciences, actually I was looking for a job, the positionship. And by that summer, we had a, a big problem during one of the largest exercise events in the Netherlands. So that is the Nijmegen four-day marches. And during this exercise event, we have about 50,000 people that walk on four consecutive days. And by that time, so it was 2006, there was a heat wave in the Netherlands. And, and during the first day, two people, two participants of this um, walking march, they died and many were hospitalized and it was a big chaos in our city. And after that, many questions came up in the media. So how could this have happened and, and how can we prevent this in the future? So following this, this event, it was decided that we need to do more research in this area. And actually, that was uh, the topic of my PhD position. 
which I started in 2007. Well, and from that moment onwards, I, I got more and more interested in the effects of exercise on the human body. At first, it was a little bit broader. So initially, I focused also on thermal regulation and the fluid balance during exercise. But I was more and more attracted to the effects of exercise on the heart because we do know that exercise is very good for your heart health. It, it improves longevity. It improves cardiovascular risk factors. But there are so many questions still that are unresolved relating the dose-response relationship of exercise and, and cardiovascular health outcomes. So I decided then after graduating from my PhD that this was actually my niche and this could be the focus of, of my research program. So following some fellowship abroad, I, I went to Paul Thompson in Hartford Hospital. Then I came back a brief period to the Netherlands before I left to Liverpool, John Morris University, where I collaborated with Professor Keith George. And then finally, in, in 2017, I got back to the Netherlands and I got the tenure track position. So, so from that moment, I'm building my research in Nijmegen together with a multidisciplinary group of enthusiastic junior researchers and fellows. And what you just introduced, indeed, we're looking to the acute effects of exercise, but also to the chronic effects of exercise across this whole dose-response relationship. So what is the minimum you should do? Is there an optimum? And what happens to your heart health if you exceed this optimum? Thanks, Thais. That's fascinating. And I think we have much in common. Are you active in a particular sport yourself, in a particular discipline? Yes, of course, you should practice what you preach, let's say. <laughs> so I'm, I'm moderately active or recreational active as a cyclist. The Netherlands is quite flat, as many of you may know, so it's very good for cycling. We do have some small, well, we call it hills, but probably if you're in another country, you wouldn't consider it as a hill. But I try to go out for a bike ride uh, every now and then. Have you ever visited our country, Southern, South Africa or Southern Africa? Fortunately, I haven't been to South Africa yet, but I have been to other um, African countries. And in fact, my first internship was, was an internship in Tanzania. So I visited there in, I think, 2005, so, so quite some time ago. But I spent there four months and I loved it. I mean, I immediately fell in love with, with Africa after that to Kenya. So I've been to a few African countries, but not yet to South Africa. Okay, okay. Now, mild to moderate exercise is beneficial for our general health. But as you said, there's some evidence that long-term, high-volume, high-intensity exercise or training may cause deleterious cardiovascular adaptations or maladaptations. Could you expand on the nature of these deleterious cardiovascular changes, perhaps like we know about atherosclerosis, vascular stiffening, aortic dilation, and the differences in adaptations between cardiac and non-cardiac arteries, myocardial fibrosis, right ventricular cardiomyopathy, as mentioned, described, I think, first by the group in Leuven, Belgium, with André Lagerge, who was visiting from Melbourne, and then, of course, uh, atrial fibrillation or supraventricular arrhythmias as well, and then also the affected individuals or sport disciplines, as well as any risk factors which could predispose these individual athletes for these maladaptations. Yeah, this is indeed a very emerging field of, of cardiovascular research. And I think 
the earlier studies or, or the larger studies that report those deleterious cardiac adaptations, maybe 10, 15 years ago, before the time we had occasional case reports or whatsoever, but the general belief was that exercise was very healthy. And the more you do, the greater the benefits or the health benefits are, especially from a cardiovascular perspective. But then several publications came out and in fact, they suggested that For example, coronary atherosclerosis was more common in in lifelong athletes or or lifelong endurance athletes, I have to say, compared to less active uh, individuals. And and, and that was quite striking. And the same holds actually for myocardial fibrosis. There were initially a few case reports that you could think, well, maybe something's going on and this is just the case. But then over time, we had actually accumulating evidence that these, let's say, deleterious cardiac adaptations are are more common in, especially, I think, endurance athletes. And what we see now in those studies is that basically the amount of lifelong exercise training years or the amount of competitive races that they have participated in, they're actually quite good predictors for the chance of developing those adaptations. And we do call them maladaptive or deleterious, but this is still under debate. So, of course, we do see that there is more coronary atherosclerosis in those athletes, but the clinical significance of those findings are yet to be resolved, actually. So we do know that in patient populations or the general population, if you do have atherosclerosis or arrhythmias or myocardial fibrosis or any of those other negative adaptations, let's say, they increase the risk for future cardiovascular events. But potentially, because you have better fitness, let's say you have a lower weight, a lower BMI, you have better cardiovascular risk factors, maybe they can compensate, or at least partially compensate, for those deleterious cardiovascular adaptations. So for most of them, I think the clinical significance still needs to be established. And probably the only exception to that is atrial fibrillation. There are some very nice publications from Swedish registries. And for example, they showed in multiple studies in population-based studies that fibrillation is more common in endurance athletes. But if you then compare the risks, for example, for stroke among those athletes with um, fibrillation, then the risks are lower compared from the general population who do have fibrillation. So that's good news. On the other hand, the risk in endurance athletes with atrial fibrillation is still a little higher than in endurance athletes without atrial fibrillation. So even though your risk profile is better compared to the general population, there is still it's better not to have those cardiovascular adaptations compared to individuals that do have them. But for sure, more research is, is definitely needed in this, in this area. And what we also see, for, for example, with, with atherosclerosis is that at least a part of those individuals, there are still some classical cardiovascular risk factors that underlie the development of those adaptations. So it, then it becomes difficult to tease out what is just regular pathophysiology and what is really exercise-induced. Yeah. Could could there be like a, or let's put it this way: Is there a higher volume? Is it a higher volume of exercise in these endurance athletes? Is it a higher intensity? 
or is it both? Is it a combination of high volume, high intensity that adversely affects the heart or the, the arteries, the coronary arteries or the large extra coronary, the extra cardiac arteries? That's a very good question. And at the same time, it's also a very difficult question to ask because what most of the studies do is that they calculate the volume in metabolic equivalent of task hours or minutes. And that's basically the product of the exercise time in hours or in minutes or whatever you will define it times the exercise intensity expressed as the metabolic equivalent of task number. So then the product is this exercise volume, which has both duration and intensity. And then it, it, it becomes a little bit difficult to tease out whether it's really intensity or whether it's volume, especially since if you do the same exercise time, but a higher exercise intensity, the product becomes greater. So then automatically you have also a greater exercise volume. So we did it recently in a, in a study, which was a prospective study on coronary atherosclerosis. So we followed 290 recreational male endurance athletes for about six years. And there we found that over those six years of time, it was mainly that the exercise intensity was responsible or was associated for the greater progression of this coronary atherosclerosis and not so much the exercise volume. But that was only in six and a half years of time. Because if we look at lifelong exercise volume, we also found that volume is a factor. So it's still an ongoing debate. And probably it's the combination of the two. Yeah. Could there be like an individual threshold for, if you call it maladaptation, or if you call it deleterious effects, whatever we call it, but could there be like inter-individual differences between athletes practicing the same discipline between runners between cyclists or even uh, stop start sports like uh, soccer and rugby and tennis do you think there's inter-individual differences so I, th I think so i don't believe that there is like an absolute threshold that if you exceed that threshold that no matter who you are or what you do that you will have deleterious effect on your heart health. So I think it's really like an individualized approach, but, but that's at the same time also a very complicating factor because it's very hard to research. And since you cannot do like a randomized clinical trial, you need probably or long-term follow-up studies in which you really get a sense of someone's exercise training characteristics and have multiple assessments of cardiovascular health or you need to pool data from different cohorts, but but definitely also the, the technological advancement. So you see a lot of endurance athletes now use Garmin or Polar or any other, let's say, watch that tracks all their exercise metrics. So I think in the future, those can be very helpful because most of the studies that are being published nowadays, they still rely on questionnaires for assessment of the exercise patterns of those athletes. Now, South Africa is the home to many endurance athletes, if it's swimmers, runners, if it's cyclists, and particularly ultra running, road and trail and mountain biking. What, or would you advise any particular routine monitoring or screening of these populations, and then particularly the aging athletes, the master athletes, and how, what do you envision? How should we follow these athletes up? routinely, yeah. individually, because of symptoms or risk profile? 
Yeah, I'm not a big believer of very general broad screening strategies as this seemed not to be very effective, at least not for detection of coronary atherosclerosis. We also know that exercise stress testing, for example, they can be perfectly normal, but then still an individual could exhibit some degree of coronary atherosclerosis. So I don't think that's the solution for early detection of, of coronary atherosclerosis. But indeed, it could be worthwhile to do just a, a kind of general checkup at your GP's office just to check your normal cardiovascular risk factors, such as your blood pressure, your cholesterol, triglycerides, et cetera. Because at least what we do now and what we see now is that those classical cardiovascular risk factors, they are still at least partially responsible for the development of coronary atherosclerosis, even in lifelong endurance athletes that have been active throughout their whole life but still also develop coronary. I think that would be very worthwhile. And also what we experience sometimes is that, for example, if we then talk to an athlete, they say, well, my blood pressure is just a little bit elevated or my cholesterol is, is just above normal, but I'm very active. So I don't need to start taking a statin or I don't need blood pressure control medication, but I'm not too sure about it. And actually, I think as those factors, every time in the cohort studies, they pop up again and again, I think it's important that they should be controlled like they should in the general population. Basically, endurance athletes are not different from that end. Yeah, I I agree with you. Would we be able to monitor and predict these maladaptations, deleterious cardiovascular changes in athletes in the long run? And what methods, so the, the classic risk factors, you said blood pressure, heart rate, cholesterol, and then the body composition, waistline, maybe even, I'm not sure what you think of the use of high sensitive CRPs. What, how would you follow these athletes up? Would it be resting ECGs? Do, do you envision in the future, if we do see that there's changes or there's deposition of plaque in large, uh, for example, we routinely look at free of charge, everybody who passes through our rooms, we have a look at the large arteries and see if there's deposition of calcium and and plaque, and then we have more aggressive, even in the absence of any symptoms or family history, in managing the risk factors. And we, we get more strict with LDL readings and so on, and body composition and exercise prescription. How should we monitor over time these individual athletes, master athletes, what methods do you think we should use when it comes to laboratory, imaging, would you use ECGs, would you use ultrasound, vascular ultrasound, CTs, MRIs, yep. so much available. But what would yeah. be in your setting and in our setting in South Africa, what would be sensible? Well, at, at this point in time, there is no guideline for, for monitoring those individuals. Actually, they are not covered in the regular sports cardiology guidelines at all because they're fit they're asymptomatic, or at least most of them are asymptomatic. They tend to have a very low cardiovascular risk profile. So I think this is really a gap that needs to be addressed in in the upcoming years to provide more guidance, indeed, for for clinical cardiologists around the globe. But up to then, uh, probably I would treat them or, or manage them similar to what you do in the general population. And, and, and for the future, of course, we could also take advantage of all the wearables that those those athletes have. And they monitor a lot. I mean, it's not only their exercise time and their heart rate during their exercise training, but also the recovery and the, uh, the oxygen saturation, the stress levels. 
whatsoever. And I, I can really imagine if you could take advantage of all this big data that has been that will be routinely collected because they're wearing this watch all the time, then if you apply, I don't know, AI solutions or machine learning or deep learning, I think it could be possible maybe in, in five or 10 years that, that they those algorithms could assist clinicians and researchers to early detect individuals that are at high risk and should warrant follow-up assessment at, at the doctor's office. Yeah. Now, most research when it comes to atherosclerosis and cardiac maladaptation and so on hails from Europe and the United States, and it's mainly Caucasian athletes, often more men than women as well. What do we know or what do you know about the cardiovascular mal or adaptations in African master athletes living, working, training and exercising in the, on the African continent? Yeah. yeah, that's a very good point. It depends a bit, little bit on what topic you're interested. For example, if you're looking to biomarker responses following an acute bout of exercise or to the impact on cardiac function, I think there is very, very good evidence also from South Africa, from studies at the Comrades Merit or, or any other big races in, in South Africa. But I think especially for coronary atherosclerosis, the available literature data is mainly related to Caucasian male athletes. So even in females, we still don't have a clear understanding of whether they are being affected in the same way as male athletes do. And you could question whether, so if it's really exercise driven, then maybe it doesn't really matter whether the athlete is black or white or from South Africa or from India or from Europe. But we do know that some of those populations, they are at increased risk for developing of coronary atherosclerosis. So maybe in those individuals, if you add excessive exercise on top of that, maybe it could lead to even more acceleration. But we don't know at this stage. So this is definitely um, a good idea for follow-up studies to see how other populations across the globe are, are doing on that end. Well, let's do it. Like Nike says, let's just do it. Let's go for it. My other question would yeah, be... why not? I recently attended a conference, the CRI conference, Cardiac Risk in the Young, at St. George's University in London with Michael Papadakis and Sandeep Sharma. And CRI is a charity that focuses on screening uh, youngsters if it's primary or secondary prevention of sudden cardiac death and sudden cardiac arrest. And I learned to my horror that per week there's 12 to 14 youngsters under the age of 18 in the United Kingdom that suddenly die because of cardiac reasons. Is there, and they really focus on screening in high schools and, and sport clubs, and we all know about the, the project at the young elite soccer players in the United Kingdom with Anil Malhotra, who published the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago. Is there, in your opinion and your experience, a role for screening young athletes what, at whatever level, like in Italy, where it's compulsory, to determine the risk of sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death? And is this practiced in the Netherlands, for example? Well, to answer your, your last question, the first, the easiest, no, this is currently not mandatory in the Netherlands. And the reason for that is that a few years ago, the Dutch Health Council, they evaluated all the available evidence that there was for the effectiveness of screening programs. So then I talk about nationwide screening programs like they do have in Italy, and also the cost effectiveness of those programs. 
And actually, they concluded that it's not cost-effective and therefore it's not reimbursed, so it's not recommended in the Netherlands. I can agree, actually, that with that point of view, because I think several studies now show that it could be effective maybe in, in certain populations, but definitely not for the population at the, at the whole level. And also the costs, I mean, it, it, if, if the screening is for free, which is not the case, of course, well, then maybe it's cost effective, but, but actually those screening programs are quite costly. And I think we could better invest that money in training, in education, about recognition of cardiac system, of cardiac symptoms or sudden cardiac arrest, uh, and then also resuscitation courses, the availability of AED devices at uh, sports facilities, so that if a problem happens that it's being and it's being witnessed, that immediate care could be delivered on the pitch and, and that prevent the, the sudden death of this young individual. Yeah. Are, are certain sporting disciplines or certain types of exercises more cardiovascular health hazardous than others? Is there a difference between cyclists and runners or the stop-start sports and the endurance sports or swimming and rugby? Are there particularly risks related to certain disciplines when it comes to cardiovascular health and risk. And on, do you refer to sudden cardiac arrest or do you refer to the more like in the aging population, the, the deleterious cardiac adaptations? Both. So the sudden cardiac arrest, and I think death is probably more related to the stop-start stop sports like basketball and so on, and soccer and rugby, as we've seen recently on the fields again, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. But also the, the long-term... Yep. Uh, changes or, or vascular changes, cardiac changes. Yeah, actually, that, that's that's one of the questions that we also previously had for coronary atherosclerosis, whether that was more common in, in specific sports. And then what we did in our study, so we had about 320 master's athletes of different disciplines, and then we compared the prevalence of coronary atherosclerosis between runners, which was a big subgroup between cyclists, which is very popular in the Netherlands, and within other sports. And then, in fact, it appeared to be that coronary atherosclerosis was more prevalent in runners compared to cyclists. And that's that was an explorative analysis, but that's an interesting finding. And it may also provide us information about, about the underlying mechanisms responsible for this accelerated coronary atherosclerosis. So one of the ideas that we had is that running is, is generally uh, a bit more intensive compared to cycling, or to road cycling. So that could be a factor that if you do the same volume, but at a higher intensity running, maybe that could contribute to the acceleration of coronary uh, calcification. And of course, the other big difference is that one is weight-bearing, the other is weight-supporting. So it could also have a, a distinct impact on your calcium uh, homeostasis. But unfortunately, little is known about that that factor. So that's an avenue for, for further research and also pooling of cohorts to see whether this finding still holds if you have a larger sample and, and a broader population from truly excessive exercises to more recreational exercises. Yeah. I think my next question, you've maybe partly answered, but I'm still going to pose it because we may have missed some of the angles so in, in a, a, a famous A-rated scientist, sports scientist in South Africa is Tom Tim Knox, Professor Timothy Knox, 
then you may know me. I'm sure you've met him and so on. So yeah. in 1979, when he started as a fellow with another famous South African researcher, Lionel Opie at University of Cape Town, they published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Autopsy Proven Coronary Atherosclerosis in Marathon Runners. And the contention till that time was that marathon runners were immune to atherosclerosis. The Americans didn't believe that marathon runners could actually end up with a myocardial infarct. And Tim Knox and Lionel Opie shared the post-mortem findings in marathon runners who died because of myocardial infarcts. Now, your there were several papers, and one of them is your paper. Uh, the, I think the landmark papers on this topic. So several research papers recently delineated the prevalence and the nature of coronary atherosclerosis in master endurance athletes. And could you currently just maybe lift a tip of the of the, the current knowledge, the current state-of-the-art knowledge on coronary artery disease in master athletes or whatever ethnic or sporting discipline background? Actually, I think the landmark paper was done by Stefan Molenkamp, who comes from Germany and that was published in 2000. And in his study, he showed that um, older marathon runners above the age of 50 who completed more than five marathons in the past couple of years, they had more coronary calcification score compared to a control group from the general population. And that was quite striking, that finding. But there was also some criticism on, on, on that study because they said, well, it could be that they recently adopted or shifted to a more active lifestyle? And are we not looking at risk factors that have been accumulated earlier uh, yeah. during their age? So as a response to that study, we and also others started follow-up studies. And, and we also looked to the association of lifelong exercise volume and, and coronary atherosclerosis. And, and there we found that there was a very strong association, actually. And those who did the most lifelong exercise, they had a higher prevalence of not only coronary calcium score, but also coronary plaques compared to those who did the least. And what was quite nice on that study is that we didn't uh, only look at the calcium scores, but we also looked at the plaque types. And then it appeared to be that uh, we found predominantly calcified plaques in the most active individuals who are very stable and not so rupture prone, whereas in the least active individuals, they had less coronary atherosclerosis, but they had more mixed plaques. And those are the plaques that are more vulnerable for rupturing and clinical problems. So then in the end, we concluded something like, okay, there is more coronary atherosclerosis in athletes, but as it's more calcified, it could also be like a beneficial adaptation like what we see after you prescribe a statin. And following our publication in the same issue of circulation, there was a co-publication from Sanjay Sharma's group from London, and they found exactly the same findings in their cohort of, of London athletes. So they found more coronary atherosclerosis, they found higher calcium scores in lifelong athletes compared to sedentary controls. They also found more calcified plaques in the athletes compared to the controls and less mixed plaque. So that was very reassuring. But earlier this year, in I think it was March this year, there was a publication from the Belgian group of, of Guido Klasse and Ray Lagerge. And they confirmed our finding that coronary atherosclerosis was most prevalent in the most active individuals. 
but they refuted our finding that the plaque composition was different. And in fact, they observed that the plaque composition was as worse in the most active athletes compared to the least active athletes. And that reopened the discussion again. So what are we looking at? And is it, is it still beneficial, this adaptation, or maybe not? And this clearly warrants a prospective follow-up of those individuals and to see how those coronary calcifications and plaques, how they translate to heart events during follow-up. But then probably we need another five to 10 years before we have accumulated enough events and, and pulled the data to make strong arguments on, on, on that finding. Yeah. But that's definitely what would be the next step. Mm, we'd love to join you in projects like that. No? Now, are, are there noch, are there specific risk factors for this atherosclerosis? I know you mentioned hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, all the usual risk factors. Are there other sports-specific factors and certain disciplines? Is there, because in these manuscripts, they mentioned cycling, running, swimming, tennis, aerobics, and uh, are there differences in plaque composition, the amount of calcium, and even plaque localization, plaque volumes, is, and, and so on. Is, it, is there any sex predilection? And you already mentioned the prognostic relevance that we need long-term long -term studies in different populations, maybe different sports sexes, ages, risk profiles, and so on. And how would you manage the atherosclerosis? You already mentioned that you would potentially manage them as any patient. And my question is respect what also you mentioned the word statins. And a lot of athletes are adverse to statin use because the statin's got a bad reputation, aches and pains. And I think it's true, and it's probably proven that there's some more, with certainly with the highly active statins that there's in high dosages, more side effects. Would you prescribe statins? What dosages, a specific statin? What's your opinion? And how do you practice or how does your team practice? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to start with the first question, so what basically all the studies have shown with respect to coronary atherosclerosis is that they are clearly volume-driven. So the more exercise you do throughout your life, the, the greater the odds to develop coronary atherosclerosis. And that partially also translates to the type of sport that you do. Because if you do running or cycling, then it has a relatively high intensity score. So if you do one hour of running and one hour of cycling, that adds up quite rapidly, whereas tennis has a lower intensity score. So then also the volume score stays a little bit lower. So probably moderation is key here. If you choose to do more than moderate intensity kind of activities, walking, tennis, maybe aerobics, then, then the lifelong or, or the exercise volume is also moderate. So the odds to develop coronary atherosclerosis is probably lower. Intensity, of course, what I mentioned before, is, a, is an emerging factor. So that's something to keep an eye for. And for sex, basically, we don't have much data on female athletes yet. There are a few papers out there. They have a little mixed findings. So some show no difference between uh, the female athletes and the female controls, and other tend to show more coronary atherosclerosis in the athletes compared to controls. But clearly, we need larger female-focused studies to answer that question. It is, of course, true that, that females are being protected for the development of cardiovascular diseases due to their uh, hormonal uh, levels. So maybe they're also protected from those 
exercise-related maladaptations, but that needs to be confirmed in larger studies. With respect to the management of, of athletes with, with coronary atherosclerosis, as I said before, there are no clear guidelines yet. So what we experience is that every physician or every cardiologist does it a little bit on his own and follows his own routine. It also depends on, on, on the magnitude, obviously, of, 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 of the coronary atherosclerosis. So, of course, you could look to the age and sex specific data with the MISA percentiles and also to estimate where is someone in the continuum? Is it, is it normal for that age and, and, um, uh, and sex? Or are you really in the upper ends of the, of the percentile curves? And then, of course, all classical cardiovascular risk factors, they need to be treated harsh. And if your uh, lipid levels are too high, then also a statin should be used because it's, we know that lipids are very important for coronary atherosclerosis and they really promote it. So they should be treated. And, and that's what we actually do with also with our athletes. And of course, some of them, they experience muscle problems and then you can adjust the dosage or you could even switch the type of statin or you could just lower the intensity of, of the exercise training, which is also helpful. Because we did an earlier study this year in which we looked, for example, in long distance walking and looked at um, skeletal muscle damage, but also cardiac damage based on cardiac troponins. And there we didn't see any difference between skeletal damage or cardiac damage following prolonged moderate intensity exercise between statin users and non-statin users. Yeah. yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you, Thijs. Now, you mentioned exercise-related troponin levels or increase in levels, and you published extensively. I think one of your first studies, the Nijmegen four-day march, had to do also with elevated troponin readings and, and that it even perhaps it was a marker of poorer long-term outcome, adverse effects. Could you share about your research evaluating the prevalence and effects associated with and the relevance of troponin release during sporting events and yeah. also the prognostic relevance, the potential mechanisms and so on? Yeah. Yeah, so cardiac troponin, that's a very you know, potent biomarker for assessment of myocardial injury, and it's in all the clinical guidelines for assessment of acute coronary syndromes. And then some 20 years ago, or even 25 years ago, the first reports came out that athletes engaged in really excessive exercise, like ultra-endurance races, if they took a blood sample before the race and after the race, they observed that there was a, a small increase in the concentration of cardiac troponins. So then initially it was thought, well, is this a marker of, of cardiac damage? But then the more studies that followed in every type of exercise, basically they observed the same pattern. So whether you're running a marathon or a half marathon or a 10K or even doing walking exercise, which has substantially lower exercise intensity, if you take a blood sample in a large group before the race and after the race, we found elevated troponins following exercise. What is important here to emphasize is that the magnitude of the increase is relatively minor, especially if you compare it to clinical patients that you typically see. What is also important to emphasize is that beyond the minor, the minority of the elevation, it also, it normalizes really quickly. So you see a normalized value again with one to, let's say, two or three days. 
And for most patients who had a myocardial infarction, it can be elevated for many days, uh, up to a week. So both the, the, the magnitude of the release as well as the kinetics of the release, they are markedly different. So it was believed for a long time that this was actually a kind of benign phenomenon or more like physiological phenomenon. But there was no data to support that. So then we thought, well, maybe we should set up a study to assess the prognostic relevance of exercise-induced elevations in cardiac troponins. Because in the meantime, there were many uh, general population studies, and they show that even minor elevations of, of cardiac troponins on a population-based perspective, they were predictive for future cardiovascular events. And why should this be different in athletes? We don't know. So then we set up this study in, in participants of the Nijmegen four-day marches, and we included 725 participants over the years, and we followed them. They were pretty old. They were 60 years on average, but the age range was uh, between 30 and I think 90 or so. Uh, and we followed them over time. We, we looked at heart outcomes, so at all-cause mortality and major adverse cardiovascular events. And then we compared the event rate between those who had an abnormal troponin concentration following exercise, so that is greater than the 99th percentile, and those with a low value, so below the 99th percentile. And then it became very clear that if you have a troponin value above this 99th percentile, you have a worse prognosis, even after you're correct for all sorts of potential confounders, the main findings still, still stand strong after that. So that was the first study, and that was published in, in 2019, that really showed that exercise-induced cardiac troponin elevations are not benign, and we should take them seriously. And I personally think that exercise during such mass participation exercise event, it's a kind of natural stress test for the heart, right? Yeah. And you can imagine that if there is maybe some subclinical disease or something else going on with your heart, that it's more difficult to accommodate this, this stress test. And if you are more difficultly in, in doing so, then you can imagine that there is a greater production of troponins. And therefore, this could be a potentially a novel marker of cardiovascular diseases or future cardiovascular events. And that's something that we're currently investigating in a big study uh, in which we compare troponin release between 500 walkers, 500 runners, and 500 cyclists. We're also going to follow them for years to see how it really translates to cardiovascular events in the long term. In the meantime, we also did some mechanistic studies to see if we know anything about the underlying mechanisms, because that was still unclear. I mean, we do know from patient studies that it's mainly necrosis, and this necrosis results in shedding of troponin into the circulation, and that's actually what we're measuring. But clearly, this was more unexpected in athletes, because if every time if you would exercise, there was a necrosis, then exercise wouldn't be as healthy as we're currently seeing. So we did a very nice study during the Amsterdam Marathon a couple of years ago. And basically, what we did is that before the race and immediately after the race, we put them in a cardiac MRI coil, and we had some novel scanning protocols, not only to look at the, the cardiac dimensions, but also look at the integrity of the cardiomyocytes. And basically, we're looking at, at the diffusion of water within the cardiomyocyte to without the cardiomyocyte. And then actually what we found is that those cardiomyocytes, 
they become more leaky after exercise. And we also found that the amount of leakiness was very strongly correlated with the concentration of troponins. So then we hypothesized that maybe it's not damage or like permanent damage, but maybe it's kind of a reversible damage caused by the leakiness of those cardiomyocytes that caused the increase in, in, in troponin concentrations. And of course, it could still be that, that it's, it's reversible, but if I could choose between my, my own cardiomyocytes to become leaky or not so leaky, then probably I would choose not so leaky because I think the, the magnitude of leakiness is also an indicator of your cardiac vulnerability. So that's another thing that we will investigate in, in, in future projects. The, the leakiness, could it be physiological? Could it be just adaptation and something that was mended, intended to be by the creator? Or is it pathology? We don't know because we don't have these long-term outcome studies. But what do you think? You've got far more than an idea than I have. It's, uh, we thought about that as well. But first of all, this study was a very small pilot study. We only had 11 individuals. Yeah. Was and it was a quite complex uh, imaging protocol. So we definitely need to expand that, that number of participants. I'm not sure, sure if it holds any physiological value because I cannot think of physiological adaptations that are being stimulated by this magnitude yeah. of leakiness. So I would consider it probably pathological or pre-pathological. It's not permanent damage, so that's a good thing. But still, if there is more leakiness, and again, also with troponins, we see that exercise intensity is one of the main drivers of troponin release. So it could really be that if your exercise intensity is too high, it's difficult for the heart to catch up. Maybe increasing this micro damage and increasing this leakiness factor, and then the troponins leak from the cytosol into the circulation. And that's something that we measure. That's an hypothesis, but clearly we're not done in this area. There is uh, sufficient food for thought. So you think Kipchoge put his heart at risk by trying to run under the two-hour limit, no? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Well, the thing with Kipchoge and many others, they're still young or relatively young. So, yeah. so maybe the, the recovery modus of the heart is better at a younger age, so you can better digest those extreme exercise volumes uh, but maybe if you continue to do so in your 40s and in your 50s, yeah. then it's more difficult for the heart to recover from such exercise bouts. And then maybe on the long term, it could lead to deleterious cardiac adaptations. Now, so troponins and cardiac troponins are supposed to be cardiac selective. But how selective are cardiac troponins? And we do see troponin, that there's troponin leakage from skeletal muscles as well. There's a few publications. And I think you've, in your recent work, you've also looked at new serum markers of myocardial damage, soluble ST2 concentrations and the cardiac myosin protein C binding levels. How, what marker would be the ideal marker? And as a clinical cardiologist, when we get an athlete in after comrades with chest discomfort, what marker, if we had all these markers available, should we be looking at? Well, I think troponins are uh, probably still the best marker because troponin assays are now globally available. We also have high sensitive assays, even point of care systems. So that's very nice on, on troponins. And indeed, there 
is some concern for cross-reactivity for skeletal muscle problems, but this only relates to troponin T. Yeah. So there are two types of assays. There are troponin T assays and there are troponin I assays. And many studies show that troponin I is not affected by cross-reactivity. So that's very reassuring, I think. And for troponins and exercise, we see a similar increase, both for troponin T and troponin I in, in athletes. With the other markers, these are more experimental markers. And of course, it's always interesting to look how they do, what kind of information they provide. And also with those novel cardiac biomarkers, we observe that they increase following exercise. But still, the clinical relevance of this increase is, is not so clear. And they are not widely available because they can only be assessed in spe uh, specified labs. So I wouldn't use that and I would definitely stick to proponents. What is also important to say at last is that, that all those athletes that participate in those troponin studies, they're asymptomatic. And that's different from the patients that you probably see in the uh, emergency department. For sure. Yeah, thank you. Now, the last questions that we've compiled have to do with another field. That's of cardiac rehabilitation and population studies, epidemiology. And you've got a wide interest and you're involved with cardiac rehabilitation as well. Now, Sub-Saharan Africa has been reported by the World Health Organization to demonstrate the highest growth rate of ischemic heart disease of all regions in the world, all continents. And you have studied sedentary behavior in cardiovascular disease patients, and you reported the need for tailored interventions. Could you briefly share your findings and hand us some advice to us South African practitioners concerning which interventions we should be considering in our local cardiovascular populations? At the hospital I currently practice, we've started a multidisciplinary rehabilitation team. So we're actively looking at what to look at, what parameters, how to monitor, and also to do it remotely. So with patients exercising at home instead of at, uh, at the local center or at uh, the rehab associated with our, our, our medical center. Yes, yeah, so, so cardiac rehabilitation is a very important topic, and, and especially since many studies show that Participants that are of patients that are eligible for cardiac rehab, if they choose to attend, they have a way better prognosis uh, compared to those who choose not to attend. So, first and foremost, it's very important to enroll every patient that is eligible for cardiac rehab into such a program. And recent studies, they also compare the effectiveness of center based cardiac rehabilitation programs, which are, let's say, the default modus and, and how we did it for. 30, 40, 50 years ago to more remote or hybrid rehab programs. And actually the findings are quite reassuring because the effectiveness is comparable. And that's good news, especially for, for countries like yours, in which it's not always possible to come to the center and do your exercise training there, but to do it more remotely. And I think also the increase in, for example, smartphones and wearables that patients have, they could be used to guide them for local exercise training. What we were also interested in is that, so, so one of the reasons, of course, to do cardiac rehab is because of the supervised exercise training that improves the cardiorespiratory fitness or aims to improve the cardiorespiratory fitness of the attendees and thereby also improving the, the risk factors. But increasing knowledge from more epidemiological studies, they also show that, for example, if you change your sedentary behavior and replace one hour of sedentary time or sitting time for one hour of light physical activity or even better, moderate to vigorous physical activity, 
that could also yield benefit from cardiovascular risk profile perspective. So we looked in, in, into sedentary behavior characteristics of Dutch CVD patients and compared them with age and sex match controls. And then we observed as we expected that they sit more than healthy peers do. So that underlines the, the need to target this sedentary behavior beyond their exercise training. So in the past years, we developed a kind of sedentary behavior intervention that, that is added to our cardiac rehab program. And that also had, had shown to be effective uh, in reducing sedentary time during the cardiac rehab program. The only challenge is that as soon as you stop this intervention and they return back home, they cannot track their sedentary behavior anymore. And then over time, they fall back to all behavior. So it's not really a sustainable finding, unfortunately. And this is something that we try to address in, in, in follow-up studies. And maybe we should prescribe them a kind of a booster training sessions on, in a hybrid form, or we should extend our, our rehab program. So this is something that we're currently investigating. But I definitely foresee a, a large role for wearables in, in the future of cardiac rehab. During COVID, the COVID pandemic, South Africa was subjected to a very strict prolonged lockdowns. I think one of the strictest in the world with uh, military on the streets and roadblocks. I was pulled off myself. <laughs> You've published on the effects of lockdowns in the Netherlands. Do you currently in your country still experience the consequences of previous lockdowns on cardiovascular health? Yes, yeah, so, so, so that's actually the question uh, of a project that we're currently performing. So what we observed in our cardiovascular disease population is that at the beginning of the lockdown, we saw that they, they became more sedentary as expected, like probably the rest of the world. But then after the, the lockdown measures, they were uh, lifted gradually we actually saw that their sedentary behavior further increased. So they, did, they were not reactivated by themselves. And I think that's very concerning. So now we're doing a follow-up project to see now we are back to normal in, in the Netherlands and the rest of the world, luckily, whether their activity level came back to pre-pandemic levels or whether they are still actually more sedentary, because that could be a reason to develop specific tailored programs to activate those individuals and to get them back into a, a more physically active lifestyle than yeah. they are currently used to do. In South Africa, you may have heard of a, a local medical insurance company called Discovery and Discovery Vitality. And Discovery, a membership of Discovery rewards healthy choices. So sticking to the speed limit, eating wisely, exercising, one gets points, rewards. Is Do you have a similar system or scheme in your country? I know that uh, several healthcare insurance companies, they think about it or they started doing that. But uh, I thought that here, at least in our country, it's difficult from a legal perspective. But of course, I can encourage any initiative to uh, live a more healthy lifestyle with healthier food, with more physical activity, with more exercise training, etc. Because we all know that pays off in the end and it reduces our healthcare costs as a society, but it also improves your, your life expectancy and, uh, and your risk for the development of chronic diseases. 
I have a few questions left, and I think we don't have much time. So uh, let's. I thought it, there's still valid questions, and I'd like to just push on if you're happy with that. You recently published a meta-analysis in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, which analyzed the relationship between step count or case mortality and cardiovascular events. Could you briefly summarize your findings of this very important study? Yes. Yeah, so, so step count is actually a kind of emerging in physical activity metric, because it's not included in the current uh, guidelines yet, also not from the WHO, because they only say or they only recommend adults to do 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. But what is moderate to vigorous physical activity? I think many individuals from the general population, they don't know what it is and how to count it and, and whether they meet the guidelines or not. Whereas steps, that's very intuitive. Everyone knows what a step is. And if I would explain the concept of steps to any patient and say, this is your target, go for 5,000 steps per day, then I'm sure that the message is very clear and, and he or she understand that message. So we were interested in this relationship. How many steps should you take to reduce your risk for mortality and cardiovascular events? So we did a meta-analysis. We compiled the data of, of 12 international cohorts. We had data of more than 100,000 individuals. And basically what we found is compared to the reference group who did 2,000 steps a day, if you do only 500 more, if you do 2,500 steps a day, you have already a significant risk reduction for all-cause mortality and cardiovascular events. Only 500 steps. That's about five minutes of regular walking, let's say. If you do more exercise or more steps, then your risk gradually reduces with increasing step numbers. And we found an optimal step volume of about 7,100 for cardiovascular uh, events and 8,800 for all-cause mortality. And these two numbers are still well below the 10,000 steps, which is typically used by many individuals as kind of your daily step count prescription. So you could really do less than that to already gain many health benefits. Yeah, so small steps towards a healthy future, very significant findings. And we thank you, we're grateful for your research. I've got two last questions. And the, the first question is to do with the health benefits of physical activity. If you could spend an evening with South, South African politicians, healthcare planners, policymakers, what would you advise them for our country, South Africa, taking into account also the limits we have, the limitations economically, infrastructure-wise? We don't compare ourselves with Europe or North America, but let's say we put you around, the, we sit around the table for a sumptuous supper with South African policymakers. What would you whisper them in their ears? Yeah, I think my first recommendation would be that every step counts. So small volumes of physical activity, they yield already large health benefits. And for many people from the society, whether it's in South Africa or any other country, I mean, those recommendations raised by the World Health Organization, they are just too far away. So if you just say, let's try to walk two and a half thousand steps per day, you can track them with your smartphone. And nowadays, many people, they do have access to a smartphone. So you can be aware of your physical activity. And from there, if this two and a half thousand steps per day are being met, you can gradually increase that number. Don't reach for 10,000. You can do that in five years from now, but let's do it gradually. 
and see how you can incorporate that in your daily life. And I think if we choose such an approach or we could spread this message from a public health perspective to the whole population, then gradually as a society, step by step, you can really merge to a, a more physically active population. Thanks, Thais. Very sound, literally sound advice. My last question is, if you would be provided with unlimited resources, unlimited time, staffing, funding, and you could pick and choose a project, what would you focus your research on? Well, then I probably would focus on those deleterious cardiovascular adaptations associated with extreme exercise training. And if there are unlimited resources, of course, I would probably include a large population, and then I mean a really large population, what you typically see in the major cardiovascular trials. So then we're talking about 15 or 20,000 athletes, preferably from multiple leaders across the, the globe so that the outcome of such a study is really representative. And then it would be truly nice to, if you do a study like that, you could on one hand, like do the acute effects of exercise by recruiting them in mass participation exercise events, taking blood samples pre and post exercise, doing echoes, uh, EKGs, link up with wearables, maybe in a subgroup do some additional imaging. That will be very exciting. And after we collected this cross-sectional data, we could follow them over time and also link them again to their wearables to see how their training routines evolve and how that would translate to, to changes in the cardiovascular health status and maybe call them in every five years to do a follow-up assessment. And that would be truly exciting. But I'm afraid that it's a very costly study. <laughs> but nothing's impossible. And you've done in your short, uh, almost illustrious career of, I think, 15 years now in exercise physiology, you've run some marvelous projects and you're involved with very interesting projects. And I think you'll continue to publish, update, and educate us. And we really hope to, in the future, welcome you to our country and present you our South African arm of this global project that you envision, because we fully support you there. We've got the same vision. We're eager to get involved and build a database of South African athletes, and we've got plenty of them. So I'd like to yeah, congratulate you on your work so far. And we're very grateful that you took an hour and a half of your time to share your knowledge, experience, and vision with us. We've learned a lot. You've encouraged us. You've inspired us. And on behalf of all of us here in South Africa, all involved in the field of sports and health and exercise, we thank you. And, and we hope to meet you maybe at one of our local conferences in the future. Thank you very much. And I would be delighted to, to come over and uh, to add the the possibilities to, uh, to be involved in a really uh, collaborative uh, project. So th that will be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>